0: You may be seated. Will you pray with me? God, only by your Spirit will we hear anything true or good this morning. I pray that your Spirit would speak. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Colossians 1. 15 through 28. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel, this is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. If you could only have six verses, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, might be the six you'd take. They are iconic. Within scripture, there are some passages that have over the millennia shown a little bit brighter. Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Philippians 2, Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ any consolation from love, any sharing in the Spirit, that make my joy complete. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Colossians 1, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. These are the texts that we bind to our hands and write on our doorposts. We get them tattooed to our skin, and we put them on sticky notes pressed against the mirror. The words in Colossians likely predate this letter. They're a hymn, some sort of sonnet that was used in worship, and Paul writes them in this letter to the Colossians to help them understand who Christ is. The gist of my sermon last week on Colossians was basically that wherever there was an issue, Paul pointed the Colossians to Christ. when. He was talking about advice for marriage, be like Christ. When they were coming against false teaching, Paul told them about Christ. When they had lost their hope, Paul told them about Christ. Colossians is a book about Christ in a particular sort of way. This passage, this poem that starts our our text today is the crux of the whole letter. And to understand the verses that we just read, the consensus view among commentators is that you have to understand something about Gnosticism, which was a school of thought that was beginning to become pretty, pretty regular, pretty commonplace. Gnosticism eventually sort of became its own religion. It might be like in order to understand what's happening in the world today in the United States, you'd have to understand something about nationalism, There there are these ideas that you have to be familiar with in order to understand what's happening in the world today. And in order to understand what's happening in the New Testament world and in the book of Colossians, you have to understand something about Gnosticism. Gnosis is the Greek word for knowledge. That's where the, the word comes from, Gnostic. Gnostic thought emerged from Hellenistic ideas about the world One primary one being that spiritual things are good and pure, and physical things are bad and evil. And because the earth and the physical world are evil, therefore, Almighty God could not have created them. Spirits that have emerged from God, that are quite removed from the being of God, created the world. Spirits that obviously got disconnected from God's desires and God's purity, created the world. And the problem was that human beings were now stuck in this physical world of pain and suffering. And the solution to the problem of Gnosticism was was an escape from this earthly reality into a spiritual world made possible by knowledge. Additionally, there were a set of aesthetic sort of practices that the early Christians were encouraged to participate in that would help you disconnect from your bodily your bodily attachment to this world and connect more with the spiritual world. There were some extreme versions of this that used pain or sex as part of those practices. Some version of this Gnostic understanding is what the Colossians are rubbing up against. Jesus, this belief system argued, was one of these special knowledge bringers, but not necessarily a unique one, maybe a little bit unique, but essentially another one of these emanations from God that brought special knowledge that might help you detach from your physical suffering and enter into the spiritual world. Some Gnostic writings even suggested that because Jesus was one of these special emanations that he walked and left no footprints because touching the earth would have been an impurity. Jesus was a ghost-like figure bringing special knowledge. So in this portion of the letter to Colossians, Paul insists He insists on a few things. You could spend all year studying what Paul is writing here, but Paul insists on at least three things, that Jesus is God, that Jesus was a part of creation, and that Jesus has reconciled all things to himself. He begins the letter by saying that Jesus is the image of God, and the language he uses is forceful. He uses the Greek word icon, which would, uh, w- w- which would not leave a lot of room for ambiguity about how closely Jesus was connected to God. When we look at Jesus, we're not seeing the kind, gentle side of God. We are seeing the fullness of God. And he, he later uses the word pleroma, fullness, to emphasize the fact that when we look at Jesus, we see who God is perfectly not an emanation, not a spirit that's somewhat connected to God. We see the fullness of God. The word icon is used um, to also describe wisdom. in, in In the books that are written in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lot written about wisdom. And I preached on Proverbs 8 like a couple months ago and talked about how wisdom is this personified being who's present with God and part of creation And the intertestamental literature in between the old and the new talks about wisdom being the icon of the goodness of God. The word that Paul uses here doesn't leave a lot of room for for discussion. He's saying something with a lot of certainty. He's, He's making his point fiercely. Jesus is the image of God. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell in him. He's not one prophet among many. He's the one in whom the fullness of God dwelt. And then Paul says Jesus is the firstborn of creation, which doesn't mean that Jesus was the first thing created. It means he is the, the heir of creation, the purpose of creation. And he goes on to use a number of different prepositions. Through, by, for. Jesus', Jesus uh, creation was made through Jesus, by Jesus, and for Jesus. He's there, present, at the beginning of creation, which is a comment not only about Jesus being God, but it's a comment about creation being good. And he's, I don't know if you caught that, he's explicit about mentioning Jesus' physical body, which when you're just reading it at a a passing glance, it's like, why does Paul use this strange, Jesus' physical body? It was by Jesus' physical body through death that he saves Paul confirms what must have seemed absurd to some. You could understand, uh, you can sort of hear the, the, the logic of the thinking of, of sort of this Gnostic idea that wants to give Jesus a little bit more credit than saying that, well, he had this really kind of normal-looking body, wasn't that impressive, and that he was crucified. And you can hear them saying, no, 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 Jesus was divine spirit. He, when he walked, he didn't leave footprints, he floated. He says, no... Paul says, no, in fact, his body, his sufferings, his wounds are central to the whole story. You can't ignore them. He was the one through whom all things were created and he reconciled the world through his body. And the goal of creation is not to escape it, but is actually to be a part of a reconciled creation. And on the one hand, um, this sort of rebuttal of Gnosticism seems interesting historically, but fairly irrelevant. None of us, whom I, you know, none of us identify as being Gnostic. Um, but I'm guessing that many of us who grew up in the church can relate to the story that Gnosticism told, that you are bad, that the world is sinful and broken, and that your body is evil, and that only special knowledge can pluck you out of this dismal reality and bring you in through the heavenly gates. In this story, the Bible is not the dynamic instrument of God's spirit to tell the story of Christ's reconciling work. It is a storehouse of facts, propositional truths, and by believing the right ones, you could be saved from this world, which is headed for hell. That is not the story that Paul wants the Colossians to hang their hopes on. And frankly, that's not a story that can hold up on a week when the prayers of the people were like they were. Paul wants to broaden the imagination of the Colossians. He wants to broaden the categories that they used for who God is in Christ because Christ breaks all of them. What does the divinity of Christ and the humanness of Christ what does the identity of Christ mean for us? This is a quote from Rowan Williams who says, If people take seriously doctrines, the doctrine of the divinity of Christ, it's not primarily because they can treat them as if they were tidy conclusions to an argument, deductions readily available from experience. No. They see, rather, that the divinity of Christ offers a context for human living and I might add for human suffering and maybe even for human death. It's Thursday morning, and it's been raining since about 7.30. I've been choking back tears all morning. Once I get home from dropping Maya off at daycare, I enter the house wet and begin to cry. My best friend from high school was just taken home from the hospital so that hospice can help make his last days comfortable. He's been up against aggressive cancer for most of the year, and this week the doctors said that ultimate line, that final nail, the worst thing you can hear. There's nothing left to do. It feels right this morning that I'm left alone with the rain tapping against the window panes. I'm supposed to be working on my sermon for Sunday, but right now, there is no sermon in me. I want to call it all off the preaching, the communion, the singing. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face? I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I have no rest. I have no sermon in me for an occasion like this. That is true. But the other thing I find on this Thursday is that I have to preach. I have to preach to myself as much as to anyone else. I have to preach. And all I can do is lean on the iconic passages that time and time again have painted the landscape of a reality truer than death itself. And when there are no sermons left to preach... We lean on those historic lines that have sat like companions alongside of the grieving. And as they were afraid and looking down, the angel said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He is risen. Or 1 Corinthians 15 when when Paul says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? When Paul writes in Romans, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord or in Revelation. And I heard a loud voice, When the weight of the day's news leaves us grinding our teeth, prepared to throw in the towel, we need a reality larger than our screens to spur us on to good works and to keep seeking justice in the hope that one day it will be so and we will have been a part of it. When the current of the world flushes us downstream so inevitably that it seems like the only way to live, to exist, to survive, is to defend ourselves, to defend our own rights, to watch our own backs, we need a story that elevates us to the true plane of the universe, the story of a creator who did not regard his status as creator as something to be taken advantage of, but emptied himself and took on the form of a slave and became obedient to the point of death. When the only voice you can hear is the one telling you that you cannot make it, that you're not good enough and you never will be, you need a song, a song that helps you hear the true voice of Christ, Say, come unto me all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And when it feels like death has had the last say, we need words that are trustworthy and true, that point us to a truth beyond our circumstances, that the light shines in the darkness, and that the darkness, even in death, shall not overcome it. Paul tells the Colossians, listen, whatever happens, Whatever you're hearing, whatever you're feeling or experiencing or thinking, know this. Sing this when you gather. Say this when you wake up and when you lie down. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. May this be the reality that we live into as the people of God this week. Will you pray with me? God, in a week where words so often fail, I pray that your spirit would meet us on the journey, that it would help us run and not grow weary, that it would help us walk and not faint. I pray that you would broaden our imaginations this week so that we know that it is the reality of Christ's kingdom that we live in now and in the age to come. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen.